I just want to say, I hope, my prayer for each one here today is that you'll just have a love and a hunger for God's Word. Uh, so I hope that when we uh, read God's Word and, and Philip preaches God's Word, that you just get a hunger for it. So I'll, start, I'll read in 1 Samuel 4, 12 through 18. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle to today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 7. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. 1 Samuel 7, 3 through 6. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. And direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mishpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Amen. You can be seated. Didn't want to do a great job with that? That was a lot of names, and she nailed that. When I pronounce something in a minute different than the way she just did, know that she is right. And I have just not 
uh, practiced as much as she had. Let me encourage you as we're going to be in First and Second Samuel, Lord willing, uh, for the next little while. Uh, the we are covering at a, a pretty quick pace, so let me encourage you to study this on your own. There is so much here that we will not touch today uh, that is rich and good, and that's true every week. But uh, especially as we're going through these books, I encourage you to be studying on your own. Read a couple chapters ahead, maybe three chapters ahead for next week. Uh, and be prepared to, uh, to hear from the Lord. Let's pray together. God, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for your incredible testimony time and time again uh, of your faithfulness to your people, of your willingness to discipline us when we are wayward, of your commitment to show us grace and mercy we, of course, do not deserve, and uh, your commitment to your glory. God, of, of all things we desire, we desire you to be glorified. God, many times we know we have strayed from your glory, and so we are dependent upon you today uh, to draw us back to you, to, to bring us back to a place of worship, to a place of, of beholding you and seeing you for who you are. And so, God, we pray uh, that you would be at work among us, even now, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Some of you know that uh, our family made the uh, eh, questionable decision of taking a vacation in an RV this summer, uh, which was a lot of fun. We borrowed my in-law's Class A RV and drove it uh, to visit some friends of ours in Massachusetts. We thought we were doing the cost-effective thing, uh, and we did save money, but we cost ourselves in, in other ways. Uh, we, d- we wanted to make some stops along some, some you know, cool cities and different things, and so we did not go on the way up the, the rural, uh, you know, less traffic way. We instead went through places like uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, Richmond, Virginia, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Maryland, Wilmington, Delaware, Philadelphia, New York, Newark, New Jersey, New York, New York, Hartford, Connecticut, and Boston, Massachusetts in a 35-foot Class A RV. And uh, for you that are professional drivers, uh, that would have been no problem. I just have a lot more respect for you because my little um, Tacoma uh, has never felt so small. Uh, after driving that Class A uh, RV. We made it um, by the grace of God and enjoyed it. But there were many times as we were driving that I, I you know, that's just a wider vehicle than I'm used to driving, that I'm pretty sure that the, the width of that RV, I don't, I don't actually know how wide it is, but I'm pretty sure it's like six inches less wide than the lane of most of the roads between here and Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, where, where I realized how hard I was having to work to drive this thing is where Amber had taken a video from the passenger seat at one point to send a family of, of me and then whatever city we were coming into. And, uh, and I saw it later on, and I am just like intense over this wheel, like constantly moving. I, I did notice that any time if I, you know, I, I try not to touch anything when I'm driving anyway, but I couldn't reach down and grab a snack. I couldn't change directions on the phone. I could not move a hand from the wheel without steering all over the place. And every time an 18-wheeler came by, you know, I'm just like glued to this thing, trying to keep it on the road. Amber commented at some point, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time on the rumble strips uh, as we drive. And she is absolutely right. And by the grace of God, it wasn't the ditch. Like, I'll take, I'll take the rumble strip over the ditch. And uh, as, we, as we thought about that and, uh, and what it was like to just constantly be fighting that, I, I found, a, I found a, a spiritual application to my, my craziness. And that is that so often our life can feel like we are just, it's so easy for us to get off track, isn't it? Just, just any passing wind, any passing uh, 
trial, a hardship, or hill, or bridge, or narrow lane, or whatever, and it can feel like in life, if we're not paying attention, we're going to be in the rumble strip or worse. A song we're going to sing, a, a classic old hymn that we're going to sing at the end of our service today, Come Thou Fount, says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And I, and I wonder if you feel that temptation in your life, that we are prone with the winds of the days, circumstances, things that ebb and flow. We are prone to leave the God we love. Last week, we started this series in the books of First and Second Samuel, uh, where, where God's people are looking for a king. And, and we're going to see how God has made it abundantly clear in all generations, and especially in this one, that he is the king. They don't need to search for one. And yet we, like the Israelites, are searching everywhere, prone to wander, looking for somebody to be king over our life. God, throughout the peoples, the history of the people of Israel, raised up different leaders to point them this way. In the book of Judges, there's this cycle of leaders that raise up to point back to God, and yet the people keep sinning. And so we, we come to that kind of a continuation of that cycle in the first part of this book before we get a king we have a, a judge named Samuel, and we met him last week as he was born to a woman who was formerly barren named Hannah. And, and we see the way he pointed people back to God. Today, I, I want to start actually at the end of our passage. I want to start in chapter 7. And, and what I have in mind is what um, some, sometimes the movies will do because they're artistic and clever. I'm not that, but I'm just trying to like get our mind around this passage. First, you know, sometimes the movies will, will give you a a clip from kind of the end of the story. And then they'll spend the rest of the movie going back and telling you up to that point and then finish it. Does that make sense? That's what I want you to do. I want you to see almost to the end of our passage, one of the last parts that, that Wanda just read, read for us, out of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 7. And I have in mind like, you know, Forrest Gump, he starts there on the, on the, on the bench and then he goes back and tells you, or my kids made me watch a Sonic movie that started, you know, here's the, the action scene, they go back and tell you the story. So I want to tell you, almost toward the end, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, Samuel has grown up and he's serving as a, a judge and a priest for Israel. And they, are, they have gone astray, as we'll see. And they're, they're prone to wander. They're prone to leave the God that we know we should love and the God who loves us. And Samuel calls the Israelites and he calls us today to this. Return to God with your whole heart. Return to God with your heart whole heart. He says it this way in 1 Samuel 7, 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away your foreign gods, the Asheroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. There is just one God, and he is the one our hearts should be devoted to. When we wander off the path, whatever reason it may be, Samuel's invitation is the invitation to us today to return to God. And the way we return to Him is having an, a single-minded devotion, our whole heart on God. So as we begin, I want to ask you, where are you prone to wander? Where is it that you're likely to be, to be blown off the path that you should be on? We all do it in different ways. Sometimes it can be big ways, blatant ways, where we're chasing some desire or some addiction or some sinful uh, characteristic or we're something we're pulled into. We're, we're drawn away from God's word. We're drawn away from God's people. We're not in church. We're not connected to the things we should be. We, we see that wandering in our lives. But we can also do it in, in smaller ways, can we not? 
We can continue to kind of go through the motions of, of a religious life and yet our, li- our hearts be prone to more being focused on ourselves, a silent pride, a silent uh, ego that we've got, that we're, we're not really submitting to God. The outside may look nice, but inwardly are we really following the Lord. God's people are, were prone to wander, and so he commanded them, Samuel commanded them, verse 4, uh, they, they, he commanded them in verse 3, and in verse 4, they do just as they were called to do. The people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth, and they served the Lord only. They, they got away from their false ways and pro- proclaimed an exclusive faith in the one true God. Our call today is to put away all the other things and worship the one true God, to return to Him with a whole heart. Verse 6 describes the way that Israel Israelites symbolized that, and it sounds a little odd today. It says, They gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted that day. So just picture what this, this worship service looks like. They've gathered together in this city, and they are drawing water out of a well, and they get these buckets, and they pour them on the ground. And you're like, what? Why would you, you, know, why would you do that? Just like fasting, you, know, you understand fasting. Fasting is choosing to go without food as a way of, of saying, God sustains me more than the food I eat. By, by giving up a meal, by, by going a period without our normal meals, it's saying, I depend not on bread alone, but by the very word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what sustains me. And so it is with the water. Water would have been work. It's not just turning on a tap in the ancient world. It would have been work. And they're saying, I'm self-sacrificing. I'm acknowledging I need, more, I need God more than I need water itself. They have put away their foreign gods and their hearts and their minds are focused. We need God more than just the food and water that we take in. That's how single-mindedly devoted they are to God. And it's symbol of what, it's all symbolic of the next thing they say in verse 6, we have sinned against God. They come and they confess to God they are sinners. They have wandered, they've admitted, they've messed up, they've gone astray. And so they're repenting. They're coming to God in worship. That's what happens at the end of our story today. That's the picture of this, this collective gathered worship of a wholehearted, focused, glorifying God worship service. And it is a beautiful, humbling picture of renewing our commitment to God, of being devoted to Him. So how did they get there? How did they get to that moment of being devoted to God. I want to take you back through now, verse chapter, 1 Samuel, verses chapter 4 through chapter 6. And as we do, I, I want to give you a picture of what it looks like to return to God. Whatever it may be that's pulling you astray, pushing you off the path, what does it look like to return with a whole heart? In those few chapters, I want you to see something about us, something about the character of God, and something about what God has done for us. Us, the character of God, and God's actions. So I want to start with us. And that is, I want you to see sin's devastating consequences. See sin's devastating consequences. If you and I are going to come to God with a whole heart, we need to see the alternative. We need to see where that that path off the path leads to. Because it's not pretty. We can kind of go through the motions sometimes in life, pretending like we can, we can take God or leave it. You know, hey, God's one way to have a good life, but there's probably some other ways and whatever else may be. We need to see that's not true. Sin has devastating consequences. If you were here last week, we met the, the sons of Eli. And, and 
Wanda nailed the, the pronunciation, Hophni and Phineas. And they are wicked. They, and they are supposed to be worshiping God, and yet they are leading the people astray. And so we, we see how they are a representation of, of the whole nation. Everybody is supposed to be worshiping God, and yet they are full of wickedness. And so we see that the group of people, the, all the Israelites, as they go to battle in, against the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And we just have this sense coming in that because of the sin of the people, it's not going to go well. And it doesn't. Verse 2 of that chapter says, The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Ouch, right? Like a clear defeat. God's people against a foreign nation. God's people lose, and they lose 4,000 people. Clear to, clearly not what it's supposed to be. So, if you're God's people, what would you do right there? What, what's your way? God, we've just been defeated. What would you do? They, they have the, the right theology. They say, uh, when the people come, came from the camp, verse 3, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They are right. This is the discipline of the Lord. God is in charge. The Bible, Bible doesn't hesitate like we do sometimes to see that God's hand is at work even within the things that look bad to us. God's hand's at work. He is disciplining them. And yet, instead of repenting like they do in chapter 7, God's people come up with a different strategy. Here is their idea. They say, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that, we may come, that it, it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the Ark of the Covenant. If you've read the book of Exodus, you may have known a little bit about it. If you've seen Indiana Jones and the, the, the later, what is it, the lost, Raiders of the Lost Ark, just ditch that picture because that's probably not going to help you. That's probably the way you, you have it in mind. No, actually, I don't know that maybe that well. Maybe it's accurate. I don't know. But, but here's what the picture of the Ark is in the Bible. God's people in, in Exodus are making their way to the Promised Land. And God gives them these elaborate commands about how, though they are sinful, God is going to dwell in their midst. God is going to be with their people. So they build this elaborate tabernacle with all these different curtains and layers as a way that they can experience a relationship with the God of the universe while they are wandering through the deserts and coming into the promised land. And at the very center of that place of worship is this, this elaborate and ornate box, so to speak, called an Ark of the Covenant. Now, this was not an idol. It was not made in the image of God. It was not, not something to worship by itself, but it represented the presence of God. It, it says even in, in verse uh, 4, I think in, this, in chapter 4, it says, So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant. And this is what they call it. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. So this is a picture of God's rule. It's a throne. It's a picture that God reigns over all things. The cherubim are these, these angelic-type creatures that worship God in heaven. So He is ruling from this place. This is a picture of His throne. But it's not just of His rule. It's also of His revelation, His speaking to God. Because inside the box are the Ten Commandments that Moses received on the mountain of Sinai. And so this commandment is a way of symbolizing God is not just some far-off God. He has spoken to His people. He has given us His Word. So it's a symbol of His rule, it's a symbol of His presence, it's a symbol of His revelation, and it's a symbol of His mercy. Because the very top part of that was called the mercy seat. It's this picture of judgment and this picture that God is ruling over His people, but He does so from a place of love and compassion. 
And so this Ark of the Covenant stood at the center of the place of worship for the people of Israel as a way of symbolizing that God is with us. God dwells with His people, and He loves to be with us. But it's also a picture of His holiness, that we can't just come prancing into God's presence with all the sin that we have. There is, there is a barrier between us and God, and it is our sin. And so God must be treated with respect and holiness. And yet this day on the battlefield, as things are not going well, the people do the opposite of treating Him with respect and holiness. They say, let's bring that box out here so that God has to win. They are manipulating God, twisting His arm, trying to get God to do what they want Him to do when they want Him to do it. And they don't even pray. They just say, we're going to bring it here and because of it, it says, it will save us. They're trying to twist God to do what, we want him, what they want Him to do. God, to be clear, is not our servant. God is not a genie confined to a lamp that when we tell Him to do something in all His power, He has to do it. God is not the one that submits to us and to our will. We are called to submit to Him and His will. God is not our servant. And yet, how often do we expect God to show up when we ask, how we ask, to do exactly what we ask, when we want it? Usually, which is right now. Right now. God's people did that. They manipulated Him. And they tried to twist Him to do what they want. There's probably a number of ways we can do this. Probably some shallow, superficial ways. But, but I, I thought of one that I was convicted by this week. I hope, I hope you have a good and healthy devotional routine that you spend time with God on a regular basis. And, and, and that's a healthy, good, wise thing in following the Lord, to spend time reading God's Word. But a temptation that can come out of that is to say, hey, because I spent time with God today, that I, I put in my time, I expect God to show up and answer my prayers today. I did the good thing. I'm reading my Bible. I read the whole Bible last year. or Whatever else you may come up with and say, this has proved my worth. I've done this thing, and now I need God to answer me. Anytime we do that, we are manipulating the, the Ark of the Covenant. We're bringing it out to battle, and we're saying we need God to do what we want Him to do. Are we using God, or are we delighting in God? Are we treating God as worthy of worship, or are we coming to God just because He's useful to us? Our God is not a God to be manipulated or twisted or used. Our God is a God to be delighted in and to be worshipped. A God whose ways are above our ways and beyond our thoughts. A God that doesn't always do things the way we expect Him to do. But a God who is God nonetheless and is worthy to be worshipped. Sure enough, their plan of manipulating God doesn't go so well. The ark is carried in by the wicked sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. And that was our clue that this isn't going to go well. It goes worse. They have many, many more casualties, including Hophni and Phinehas that are killed in the battle. And the worst part of day two of the battle is that that very ark, the Ark of the Covenant, is captured by the enemy Philistines. The second part of chapter 4 that, that Wanda read for us is this uh, overly um, detailed explanation of just how devastating it was to the people. Eli, the prophet, falls over and dies because he's so distraught. His daughter-in-law goes into to labor early and gives birth to a son, but then dies in labor. And she names her son Ichabod because the glory of God has departed from Israel. And it's this picture of, on that day, she lost her, her husband, her brother-in-law, her father-in-law, 
and her own life, and yet she recognizes the most devastating thing is that God's presence symbolically has left the people. It is a low rock bottom type moment for the people of Israel. Not only are they now having to be servants to this foreign land, but God's very presence is no longer with them. Of course, God's not limited to a box. And God's not limited to one location. He's everywhere. But symbolically, that was the way that they saw God's presence with them. And it has been taken. It has been taken. It is a devastating moment for them. Sin is like that. Praise God that because of Christ, we don't pay for our sins like we, sh like we should. But God can still use our sins. In our sins, He can use His discipline and hardships to bring us back to Him. So sin still does have devastating consequences in our lives. We'd be remiss if we go through life thinking we can just do whatever we want and then just pray at our deathbed and God will just make it all right. We are missing the point of living with our holy God and enjoying His relationship if we're deliberately sinning against Him. There's a danger there and it comes with devastating consequences. God calls us to return to the Lord with our whole heart and starts by seeing the devastating consequences of our sin. Now, it's, it's worth noticing here that even in this kind of rock-bottom moment, God didn't punish them in all the ways that He could have. It could have been a lot worse. If you go back through the, 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 the Torah, the, the Pentateuch, the first part of the Old Testament, and see that the things that God promises will happen to His people if they leave Him. The, the, one of those places in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and it goes through all these horrible things. And kind of toward the end of all these lists is this picture of exile. Like uh, Deuteronomy 28, 64 talks about God scattering them among nations. He says, if you have left God, if you're no longer worshiping God to the Israelites, the, the land that he gave you that was so beautiful and so wonderful for you to dwell in his presence, God will send you out of here. He will exile you. You will leave because of your sin against us. But what happens in this battle? I mean, these people are sinning against God. They are not worshiping Him. The, the priests are leading them astray. They're not worshiping God. And yet, the people of Israel, they get to stay in the land. Who leaves? Metaphorically, God does. God's the one that leaves. He goes into exile. The, the Ark of the Covenant goes to the land of the Philistines instead of the Israelites. This is a picture of substitution. The Israelites were supposed to be the ones scattered among the nations, and yet God himself, in his grace and in his mercy, is willingly taken. There's no doubt here, right? God could have stopped the ark from being taken. And yet he willingly goes into the foreign land of the Philistines. The survivors of war are back at home. They're distraught, but they're still at home. And God, so to speak, his ark, is in the land of the Philistines. God was willing to suffer for his people. And you say, how, how does God suffer? Well, how humiliating was this? If you go back and read through the battle in chapter 4, the Philistines had heard about Egypt. If you go back to Exodus, you know the story of how God used incredible miracles to show his glory to the people of, Israel, uh, people of Egypt so that Pharaoh would let his people go. And he used incredible plagues and he parted the Red Sea. And the Philistines, they had heard that story. They were afraid of this God and yet went to battle anyway. And they beat him. That's, at least that's what it looks like, right? They beat the God of Israel. The ark is carried off. God is humiliated, is he not? He is carried off into this foreign land. And yet, 
God doesn't really lose, does he? God doesn't really lose. It sure looks like it. And I probably, I imagine, I don't know all your stories, but I imagine you've had a moment like that, haven't you? Where it sure looked like God lost. If there's ever a moment in the Old Testament where it looked like God lost, it's when the ark, the very holy of holies representation of God's presence, is taken out of the land of Israel and taken to a foreign land and held captive. That is a rock-bottom moment for the people of Israel where it looks like the Almighty God couldn't even stop His own ark from being taken from the land. Maybe it was somebody you prayed for and they died. Maybe it was a job you prayed for and you didn't get or you lost. Maybe it was a time where finances or addiction just brought you to a rock-bottom place and you're saying, where are you, God? Did you lose again? How can you claim to be God, and yet here I am at this rock-bottom moment? You've lost. I can look around, God. I, I can count score. I can keep score. We lost thousands of people. The ark is in the land of the Philistines. You lost, God. God says, hold on. <laughs> the story's not over. And it can be so hard to wait. It can be so hard to wait for God to finish His story. And yet God's not done. God is not done. God does not have such a fragile ego that every single time something looks like God's not winning, he's got to jump to defend himself. You know how that is? Maybe, maybe you're tempted to be that person. We, we all know people that are like that. Anytime somebody says something negative about them, they've got to hurry and defend themselves and make sure they clarify that they aren't really like that. God, God doesn't have a fragile ego. He can take it for his art to be sent to the Philistines to accomplish his purposes. It can, he can take it that people think that he lost because he's got a bigger plan, and he has never lost control. His ways are always higher than our ways, and many times his ways are beyond our comprehension. God has a plan, and it will be clear who wins. 1 Samuel 5, 2, The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So here's the picture. This is the trophy. People of Israel have been defeated the Philistines bring this, this ark into the, their temple to their God, and they set it beside him. It's like in the place of being his servant. Here's the victor, Dagon. Here's, he's the king. He's, he's the God who won today. And here's the little, the little ark beside him that will serve him and do his wishes. That's the picture of humiliation of God and the winning, the victory of, God's, uh, of the Philistines. And yet, the next morning, God makes something clear. Verse 3. When the people of Ashton arose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And you are right to laugh. Like this was meant, when you, as you read this, it sounds humorous. Wait, this, this, this idol, this, this so-called God who was just sitting still is now bowed face down to the ark of God. The Dagon is pictured as worshiping the Lord. He's worshiping the one true God. It looked like God, our Lord, was humiliated that day. And yet you want to hear humiliation? The rest of that verse says, So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. He is like Humpty Dumpty, who has fallen and can't put himself back together again. He is like somebody who, who is feeble, who has fallen and can't get back up. This supposed victor, victorious God, Dagon, is face down and humiliated. When we return to God, if we're, if we're going to return to God with our whole hearts, 
We have to see this about the character of our God. We saw our sin, but you need to see this about who our God is. God is unmatched and He is unrivaled. And He will be glorified. The Philistines had to learn this the hard way, so I hope we don't have to learn it the way they did. But hear this. Do not rival our unrivaled God. Do not. Don't rival our unrivaled God. Do not put, some, put Him beside something else in your life as if to say, I'll use him when I need him, but here's the thing that's really victorious. Here's the thing I'm going to serve, and I'll just use God as needed. I'll worship God on Sunday, but Monday to Friday, I've got money to make. I've got a career to plan. I've got a, a ladder to climb. Saturday, I, I've, I've got work to do in the yard, and this is the thing that's I'm going to glorify myself by how great my place looks, or whatever else it may be. We, we, we worship our family at the holidays. We worship the toys in our garage. We worship our pride with our network, net worth, and we just use God so often to accomplish what we want. But God has no rivals. We just sang that. I requested that one today. I don't do that often, but I requested that one. He says, that song we sing says, You have no rivals. You have no equals. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. It is good news to hear that God has no rivals. God, God will not be belittled or, or brought down to the level of any other thing of this world. God is unequaled and unparalleled. And day two that he's in the temple of Dagon, it gets even better. Dagon had fallen face down the second time, the second day, on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold of the temple. I love this. They had put him back up. The, the old man had fallen and couldn't get back up. They put him back up, and he falls down again, and this time his head and his hands are chopped off. Why, why his head and his hands? Well, you go through the story of First and Second Samuel, you'll find some other times where somebody's head gets chopped off, and I know it's gory, but it makes a powerful metaphor. David, when he defeats Goliath, after he hits him with the rock, he chops off his head. It's a way of saying David is the victor. Here's the man's head who was supposed to be the winner. He's not the winner. He has lost the battle. Same thing happens to King Saul after he falls and sins. His head is chopped off after he loses the battle. When God, the Lord of hosts, chops off the head of Dagon, he's saying he is not alive. He has lost the battle. The thing the Israelites could not do in chapter 4 by themselves, God does all by himself alone in the temple. He destroys the, 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 the foreign god who is no god. He chops off his head and he has no life. But what about his hands? Why his hands? Well, you just read a couple verses down uh, after that part. It says in verse 6, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. Hand in the Bible is a, is a symbol of power and of rule. God's hand, hand is used 12 times in these few chapters. It's a symbol of God's hand is at work. He is doing things. God's hands are not bound up. He's not tied together. His hand is accomplishing all he intends it to accomplish. Dagon's hands are chopped off and lying at the, by the door. He has no power. He has no life. He has no authority. It's clear God has no rivals. God will not be rivaled. It is clear he has all authorities. So as the Philistines hold on to this, to this tabernacle for a little while, I mean to the, to the Ark of the Covenant for a little while, things go really poorly for them. They move it from city to city, and God continues to bring plague upon plague upon the people. They had, warned, they had been afraid of this God who had worked in Egypt, and yet they did not learn from the mistake of the Egyptians. They, too, have to suffer plagues to understand the glory of God. God sends mice, and He sends tumors, and so they're like, we got to get rid of this thing. 
So they begin to ship it back to Israel, but they come up with one last test. They, they bring cows who have calves, and they strap this, this cart to them and say, all right, the calves are going to go over here, Israel's over there. If this was not God, the cows would go back to their calves. But instead, they go to the land of Israel, and they realize they had sinned against God. But still, they're treating it just like some rabbit's foot theology type thing. If this is a bad luck charm, we've got to get rid of When it gets back to Israel, they haven't really learned a whole lot either. They don't understand how to treat it. They don't do the right thing. And so for 20 years, at the end of chapter 6, end of chapter 7, God's people have been far from Him. And that's when we get back to the part that we started, where God's people, by Samuel's leading, are finally coming back to worship. Finally coming back to return with a whole heart. I don't know what the biggest conference you've been to or Christian like promise keepers or something like that. Our, our elders had a chance to go together for the gospel. And just past week, they released a, uh, an album of the singing where you can hear it. And it was incredible. It was not an elaborate band. It was just one man and a piano, but 10 or 12,000 voices praising God together. And as I listened back to that, I was just reminded of how powerful that is to see that the, all of God's people like that worshiping God. And I picture this moment in 1 Samuel chapter 7 like that. Things have been all over the place. They've been worshiping other gods. Nobody can worship God like he's supposed to. And yet God is on his throne. God is reigning. And so finally, the people come back and they are praising God. They cry out. They ask uh, Samuel, the people of Israel said to Samuel in chapter 7 verse 8, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They're dependent upon the Lord. And yet in that moment is when the Philistines decide to attack again. It may have been 20 years since they showed up, and yet here they are attacking. Have you ever experienced that where you feel like, this is the time I'm finally coming back to God, and that's where Satan comes to attack, is it not? You finally feel like you're coming back to God, and you're doing things the right way, and you're coming back to worship. You finally make it back to church, and that's where Satan makes something go wrong. And yet in that very moment, might be where you best get to see the deliverance of God. Verse 9, Samuel took an, a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And so he makes this sacrifice. And you read whole burnt offering, what does that mean? Well, go back to Leviticus, you see there's different ways they would offer things. Sometimes they would offer an animal and they'd eat part of it as a way of symbolizing fellowship with God. Here they are saying their whole heart is to God. The whole thing is burned up. It's all offered to God. We are fully dependent upon you. Verse 9, Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. The Lord answered, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. In chapter 4, when the Philistines came against them, they tried to manipulate God and work things their own way. Here, how did they win the battle? They prayed. They asked God. They said, if you don't show up, God, we have no plan B. You and you alone can save us. I, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what battle you're facing, but I know the solution. God and God alone can save you. God and God alone can change your heart. God and God alone can rescue you. And anything else we turn to to try to save ourselves will not work. God and God alone rescues His people. Hannah knew this was coming. 
chapter 2, verse 10, we saw last week, she prayed and prophesied, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, and against them he will thunder in heaven. And that's exactly what he does in chapter 7. He thunders and wins the battle. Sends him into confusion, just like the Egyptians had been sent to confusion at the Red Sea. Today, our battles may be different, but the victory is the same. It is the Lord's. And so he calls us to turn from our sin and to trust wholly in God. I want to share one, piece, one last piece of good news with you. And that's that there was another time God showed up like this. So far in the book of 1 Samuel, we have seen Samuel as a judge, a ruler. He has been a priest interceding for people. He's been a prophet proclaiming God. And a thousand years later, God would raise up another man to do those same things. He would speak God's word. He would serve as a king above all kings. And he would serve as a priest, as a mediator between God and his people. But what's different about that man a thousand years after Samuel is that he too is God himself. God sent his own son Jesus to be the ruler and king over all things, the prophet to proclaim God's word, and the priest to go between us and God to intercede on our behalf. Just like Samuel made this sacrifice of a lamb, so too the, the, the new priest, Jesus, would make a whole burnt offering, a whole sacrifice. But he wouldn't just give up a lamb from the flock. He himself would be that lamb. And he would not just give part of himself, but he would give his very life, that he would suffer even unto death. And he would do it in our place. In the first battle in chapter 4, we noticed how God was willing to go behind enemy lines. He was willing to be exiled, to be taken off for the sake of his people, to go in, uh, in the Israelites' place, to go back into that place and to be humiliated. And is that not exactly what Christ did for us on the cross? He went into exile outside the city gates. He went up on the cross. He was crucified. And where was he taken? He was taken to an, a tomb. What, what else is behind enemy lines than the tomb? Satan, has, just like the Philistines have the temple of Dagon, a tomb is the place of worship of Satan. He is the, the one over death. And so as Jesus' body lays in, in the grave, could it be any more humiliating for somebody who claimed to be the Son of God than to be dead and in a tomb? Could it be any more humiliating to be the one who said, I'm king of kings, and yet there he lays lifeless? He was humiliated. This looked like the worst defeat. This looked like the rock bottom of all rock bottoms. Way worse than anyone you've been through and I've been through. Way worse than the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and chapter 7. And yet, was not his victory all the more glorious because of that? Just like the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord defeated the foreign god, Philistines, Dagon, there in his own temple. In his own temple, God destroyed Dagon. And in that very tomb, Jesus defeated Satan once and for all. Just like the head of Dagon was taken off, Jesus stood on the head of the serpent like God had promised, Abraham, uh, promised Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Satan has no life. He is not living. He, his hands have been cut off. He has no power. God and God alone reigns. He has no rivals. He has no equals. Now and forever. God is God. He is glorious. And He is worthy of all our praise. And He invites us to return to Him with our whole hearts. And when we do, it's worth remembering the very last part of 1 Samuel chapter 7 uses a funny word, Ebenezer. And we're going to use that word in worship in just a moment. And again, you may only know that one from a, a cultural reference like Ebenezer Scrooge. 
But here's what Ebenezer means. Ebenezer means a God of a stone of help. So it's a it's a it's a monument set up to remember how God has helped us. After the people worship God and he defeats God defeats the Philistines, they set up an Ebenezer as a way of saying, "I remember the help of the Lord." And so my invitation to you, to you today as you come to God in worship is to remember how the Lord helped the helpless. When you know your helplessness, when you see the glory of God in our sin, and you see his rescue, you can remember how great he is. That he defeated the final enemy, Satan. He defeated death. He defeated the empty tomb. And he is alive and well and worthy of your worship. Come to him today with a whole heart and worship him.